Welcome to the Rejected Religion Podcast. I'm Stephanie Shea. In this episode, Dr. Dylan Burns joins me to talk about all things Gnostic. Dr. Dylan Burns acquired his PhD from Yale University and is Assistant Professor of the History of Western Esotericism in Late Antiquity at the University of Amsterdam. His research focuses on ancient religion and philosophy, particularly Gnosticism, Apocalypticism, and Neoplatonism. He is co-editor of Nag Hammadi and Manichaean Studies, and his most recent book is Did God Care? Providence, Dualism, and Will in Later Greek and Early Christian Philosophy, published by Brill in 2020. In part one, Dylan begins by sharing the Gnostic story or revelatory myth that takes place in four acts, and the evidence of this story found in texts such as the Nag Hammadi Codices. We then move the discussion to the definition of the terms Gnostic, Gnosticism, and Gnosis, and why these terms are somewhat controversial in the academic realm. For example, many groups that scholars call quote-unquote Gnostic didn't actually use that term themselves, but called themselves names like the Children of Light or the Immovable Race. Dylan covers a lot of material in this first part, and I hope you will enjoy it. Oh, and P.S., my apologies for the coughing in this episode. I was dealing with some very bad hay fever at the time of this recording, and I hope it is not too annoying. Welcome to the podcast, Dylan. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. Thank you for joining me today. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, but before we get into all the, the dissecting of definitions and all of that stuff, I'd like to start out with uh, an overview of the worldview of what is known as Gnosticism so that the listeners have a context of what we're talking about. So if you could start out uh, by talking about the general story of Gnosticism, of, of how the world and human beings were created. Uh, what is the story that's most often associated with, with what we call Gnosticism? This is a, a great question, Stephanie. Um, most of the phenomena that uh, of the ancient Mediterranean world that uh, historians would call uh, Gnostic today tend to have to do with a kind of uh, myth or, or story that, that, that's distinctive and striking. And we need some kind of distinctive and striking term to designate it. Um, this, this story is uh, like a revelatory myth that is usually told with uh, four parts. Okay, like a play in four acts. And what the story relates is this. Um, first, a theogony, that is a coming to be of the divine world of, and the world of deities. Usually a description of the source of all things, a uh, primal monad or parent, uh, sometimes called a, a father who is transcendent and beyond everything and special. 
and from this transcendent source emanates uh, a whole spiritual universe, um, which is uh, who, known by many names. Sometimes the spiritual universe is populated by angelic beings. These beings can be called aeons or eternities, and the they these aeons or eternities can occupy a space called the fullness, or in Greek, pleroma. And eventually something comes to happen uh, uh, in, in this, this fantastic space of fullness and eternity filled with angelic beings. Namely, one of these beings somehow uh, falls into error. And exactly how this happens is a... Uh, some, one of the ways in which these different, these various Gnostic myths differ from one another. But in one classic version, this being who falls into error is an angelic being or superior being named Sophia, which is Greek for wisdom. And she decides, she desires to conceive something out of herself, uh, with, without the permission of the, the parent deity. And this is not a good idea. So she does conceive of something because she has, uh, she does have a generative power belonging to the divine realm. But given that it was not such a good idea, what she conceives of is not such a good thing. And this is a monstrous being named Yaldabaoth, who is a, a, a kind of a combination of beast and deity with the head of a lion and the body of a serpent. His eyes shoot forth like thunderbolts. And here we enter the second part of the story, the second act in our play, and that is the, cos the cosmogony, the beginning of the world. Yadabaut, he's a, a blind god, so he does not see that there's a whole heavenly realm above him. In fact, he thinks that he is the parent of everything. And he wants to create his own kind of heaven full of uh, uh, angelic beings. So he does create one, but it's not a good one. It's a bad one. And this, the, the beings he creates, they're, they are evil angels, they are demons, and eventually they come to rule over a world that he creates. This is where the world that we live in comes from. He also decides to create human beings, and the various versions of the story differ on how this happens, but here the creation of humanity is the third part in the story, or the third act in the play. And something that most of these stories have in common with one another is that human beings are, even though they are made through Yaldabaoth in one sense, that is their bodies, are made through this uh, primal being, this, this demiurge or creator. Uh, demiurgos is Greek for creator. The essence of what it means to be human, the spirit of the human being, uh, usually identified with the mind, is actually from above, from the original special good realm, um, the, the heaven that pre-exists the world that we live in. And for this reason, human beings are superior to the creator of their bodies and to the creator of the world in which we live today. 
So the story of the fourth part or the fourth act in the play is the story of salvation from this present evil cosmos created by an evil creator and the liberation of this divine element in human being that comes from above, from a true heaven, from the evils that we experience today. When scholars talk about Gnosticism, they're usually talking about evidence that pertains to this story and the ancient testimonies and books we have in which this story is related. And regarding that last um, statement, what is the evidence of this story? Where do we find this? Yeah, this is a this is a great question. Why? Where do we even hear about this stuff in the first place? But it's very concrete. How do we? Where Where does this story come from? Right? Yeah. Um, so there there are two two main sources, and they're both literary, and one um, and they're both very old, but only one of them became known relatively recently in the greater scope of things. Okay. So on the one hand, we have what is called the heresiographical evidence. Um, heresiography refers to writing about heretics, that is, um, uh, ancient Christian writers beginning as early as there is Christianity, the second century CE, okay, writing about their opponents, um, the, the individuals that they call heretics, that is, people who have chosen another school of thought than the one that the writer in question is espousing. So as soon as there are Christian opinions about what is the right way to think and do Christianity, there's, there are disagreements among Christians uh, about what this right way is. And one of the very first of these writers, um, a guy named Irenaeus of Lyon, writing around 180 CE, he mentions, he knows a, a lot of these stories. And he says that there are particular uh, individuals in the churches uh, that, that he has seen. And even in the flock that he leads in Gaul, he's in, you know, what is the outskirts of the Roman Empire in the second century, who are telling stories like this in secret. And he wants to expose what this story really is and where it comes from. Um, what he says is that these stories belong to a school of thought. The Greek word he uses is hydesis. Okay. Again, this is the, where our modern sense of uh, heresy comes from, it's from this Greek word hydesis. That is, he says it comes from a school of thought that is uh, Gnostic, Gnostike, which means having a special property relating to knowledge. So in other words, these stories are espoused by individuals who belong to a Gnostic school of thought. Heresiographers, after Irenaeus, repeat some of his claims. Uh, his, his writing became widespread and uh, used by many later writers. It was an important resource for early Christian writers' concerns with heresy and heresiology. And as later writers encountered more material like this, um, and also pertaining to other um, heresies and uh, different teachings 
in the world of early Christianity, a very diverse place. They would add their own information. And so these various, these various catalogs of different early Christian teachings um, were for over a thousand years uh, the main source for information about this kind of teaching. But as for the individuals who were supposedly telling these kinds of stories and who believed in their content, um, physical evidence um, has, had always been wanting. You, it was hard to find churches that belonged to Christians who were worshiping in the true God uh, who produced Sophia as opposed to the false God, Yahweh. We don't seem to have found such churches. And what this shows is that these communities, just like Irenaeus tells us, were really mixed in with one another. Uh, these, 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 this Gnostic school of thought seems to have been a kind of subculture that belonged to greater Christian culture, right? This changes in the 18th century where uh, uh, colonial explorers begin to bring back artifacts from Egypt, some of which include books written in the Egyptian language Coptic. Coptic is the youngest um, iteration or phase of the Egyptian language, that is the, the last version of the Egyptian language that was actively used as a living language before Egyptian became obsolescent. Okay. It's a beautiful language. Uh, it uses many Greek words um, and elements of Greek grammar, as well as an alphabet, um, mainly derived from Greek, but also using letters for Egyptian sounds. And uh, its use connotates um, some kind of participation in Egyptian Christian identity. So you can still read about Coptic Christians in Egypt today, or the Coptic Christian diaspora. These are Egyptian Christians who live all over the world. There are many of them, for example, in Los Angeles, right? Now, books written in Coptic were brought to England in the 18th century, and these contained myths resembling those mentioned by Irenaeus. So for the first time, actual books that seem to contained the Gnostic myth as told by the Gnostics themselves were discovered in the 18th century. One of these books is called the Askew Codex after the doctor who bought it in London in the 18th century. And then the second uh, set of manuscripts is called the, the Bruce Codex. Not the single book, but actually several books that were put together. And these are named for the Scottish explorer, James Bruce who brought them to England. But by far the most uh, spectacular sets of Gnostic books are those discovered near Nag Hammadi in Upper Egypt in 1945. Um, and the discovery of the Nag Hammadi text is a, a subject for a podcast of its own. It's a wild story and a lot of historical, uh, uh, a lot of the, the question of how it happened and the historicity of some of the events <laughs> relating to it um, uh, are, are debated. But um, what we do know is that near the city of Nag Hammadi 
13 papyrus manuscripts uh, were discovered uh, around December 1945. And these are replete with Gnostic texts, texts that tell some version of the four-part story that I just related to you at the beginning of this podcast. And the publication of these texts over the following 30 years, culminating in the first mass market publication of the entire collection of Nakamani texts, Nakamani Library in English, published in 1977, um, revolutionized our understanding of ancient Gnosticism and arguably of early Christianity in general. So the short answer to your question, what is our evidence for Gnosticism, is first of all, these heresiographical reports, and then second of all, the Coptic Gnostic material, these books discovered in Egypt where the Gnostics get to speak for themselves. And reconciling these two pieces of evidence is a big part of what scholars interested in this material do. And indeed, uh, questions that come from the, that arise when you try to reconcile this evidence motivates many scholars who think we shouldn't be talking about Gnosticism at all if we want to understand this evidence in a, on a serious and historical, historically responsible fashion. Mm, okay. Well, Actually, uh, I'd like to jump to that scholarly talk for a bit. Uh, but thank you first for, uh, for talking about the story and about how, yeah, how we know about the story, how we even came to, to, to know that it, it existed and exists to, uh, to this day. But if we can get into this, uh, this scholarly, uh, debate about, yeah, what, what should we even call this? Um, I'd like to, stand still for a little while uh, with the terms uh, gnosis, Gnosticism, and Gnostic or Gnostics. Uh, as you note in your work, these terms are controversial uh, in the academic realm and rather complex when trying to define them. So hopefully we can kind of, you know, uh, pull these apart a little bit and look at them to, and, and examine them. So Firstly, what are we talking about when the word gnosis is used? You, you mentioned earlier uh, about knowledge, but could you elaborate a little bit more on what gnosis means? Sure. So uh, gnosis is just the Greek word for knowledge, and specifically um, the kind of intimate knowledge that comes from acquaintance with something. Okay, it's not abstract. But it's uh, something that you, you know because you've experienced it, because you've done it, because you've touched it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it's, it's personal knowledge. Um, lots of languages can distinguish between um, abstract and personal forms of knowledge. And Greek does this. And gnosis can refer to that. But it, it, it can also be used in very general senses. And it, it certainly doesn't always mean a kind of mystical experiential knowledge. It can be used, uh, we, we, we can talk about the, the gnosis of car seats. That means you've sat in that car seat, <laughs> you know, gnosis of a bicycle, you've, you've ridden that bike, that sort of thing. It can be very mundane. And um, uh, most Greek usage, it, it is. Um, however, there is a discourse 
in early Christian writing, um, as early as some texts in the New Testament that talk about knowledge, gnosis in terms of knowledge that is special and possessed by some and not necessarily possessed by others. Uh, for example, the, uh, the author of the first epistle to Timothy, um, pseudo-Paul, the author pretending to be the Apostle Paul, um, disparages the gnosis falsely so-called of some of his opponents. And this gnosis has to do with the philosophy, uh, teaching of divine things, and eating uh, meat sacrificed to idols. This is a, a common problem in early Christian communities, whether or not to participate in um, the kind of civic cults that all Roman citizens um, and members of Roman communities were expected to participate in, okay? Um, so it, it doesn't refer to orgiastic activities, but um, something more like going to football games uh, in terms of uh, popular culture. And so the, the, this, this kind of gnosis could refer to not just abstract teaching that one doesn't like, but also to um, the, the belief that this is the right thing to do or this is not the right thing to do. It can be very active in the case of First Timothy. Now, Irenaeus likes that phrase, gnosis falsely so-called, okay? So when he begins to write against people with whom he disagrees about Christian teachings, he calls their teaching gnosis falsely so-called, the, the, the false teaching or false knowledge of his opponents. And he has all kinds of opponents, and he disagrees with them about all kinds of things. Um, the nature of Jesus and the teaching, how many gospels there should be considered to be true, what is the character of uh, Christian ethics, what is the character of the Son as uh, the Divine Son and his relationship to the Divine Father. Lots of questions that, that, that do not necessarily have to do with Gnosticism, right? But Irenaeus claims that many of his opponents called themselves knowers. The Greek word here is gnostikos, so that would be somebody in possession of knowledge. And what he means is they profess to have a knowledge about something but I don't think they know anything at all. So this is a, an important point because the, while, while the kinds of myths that we use the term Gnostic or the term Gnosticism to talk about today are known in large part thanks to writers like Irenaeus, Irenaeus is actually really loose in terms of how he uses the term Gnosis and Gnostic to describe things. He just uses them to describe teachings that he doesn't like at all. And these teachings don't necessarily have to do with that special story in four parts about creation and the divine nature of humanity. They can have to do simply with uh, the degree of divinity we want to accord to the person of Christ. So this creates real problems for scholars. The way that we use the term Gnosis or Gnostic today does not always accord with the use among heresiographers like Irenaeus. And this has led some scholars to think we shouldn't use these terms at all. 
Um, it may be better not to use these terms that we find used very loosely in ancient sources, but make our own new terms to describe these sources that better reflect what we think we might see. For example, we know that these myths were always associated with early Christian communities. And what is distinctive about them is their weird teaching about the creator, this uh, demiurge, right, this craftsman figure. So why not call them instances of Christian demiurgicalism? That's one suggestion that has become really popular in North America today. If I could ask another question with regard to the actual quality of the uh, the knowledge that quote unquote Gnostic uh, person would be uh, experiencing, is is the knowledge a type of knowledge that is like revealed at one time, or is this a knowledge that you can learn over a span of time? Is this like a uh, like what would we call an epiphany? Like you just automatically, just in an instant, understand something and know something, and 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 have that type of knowledge, or is this something that you're taught over a period of time, over a course of time? That's a good question. How does if if how how did Gnostic teaching operate in practice? Right. Yeah. Um. So again, the, the heresy hunters have something to say about this. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Irenaeus says people teaching these myths are hanging out in his flocks, and he wants to write about this material so that other concerned bishops will be able to recognize it when it appears in their own communities, and then they'll be able to stamp it out. <laughs> okay? Sort of like a ancient, like the ancient version of uh, manuals on the occult and heavy metal, you know, right. written for preachers who want to find a Slayer fans in, in their church and, and be able to give those kids a good talking to. I mean, this is, this is the rhetoric that, that Irenaeus is using, right? And he says that the way these teachers of the Gnostic myth proceed is they, outside of the normal meeting times of the community, the church, uh, ecclesia uh, means uh, a community or a congregation as well as church in Greek. It's a group of people, uh, not just the physical building. Um, so outside of regular meetings of the ecclesia, these teachers gather uh, individuals who they consider to be marks or uh, suitable subjects for the teaching. And they say, hey, you know, didn't it always bother you that at the end of the first book of Genesis, God says, let us make humanity in our image? If he's the only God, then who could he be talking to? Why would he use the plural us? And moreover, he wants to make humanity in his image. But then in the second chapter of Genesis, we read that he proceeds to fashion Adam out of clay and dust, and then he blows into his face with a wind. But that doesn't sound anything like the creation account that we just read in the first chapter. So how do we put these things together? I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story that makes sense 
of the, this weird scripture that we have passed down from Moses. Because Moses didn't get it right. I have the real story. And then this, this teacher proceeds to tell you something more. So there were, there, were, there were problems in scripture and also in trying to reconcile scripture with uh, what we could call ancient science, you know, ancient philosophy, teaching about physics and so forth, that teachers in the ancient world, also before Christianity, um, were engaging in. They, they tried to make sense of this stuff. And these teachers would, uh, would, would present these teachings to interested parties. And clearly, this is something that is bothering Irenaeus. Some of these teachers disagree with him <laughs> about how to interpret the scriptures. But as, as regards to the question of revelation, we have a very interesting account presented in one of the Coptic texts that we discovered from Nag Hammadi. Um, and this is one of the few um, expositions of a Gnostic myth that is itself not a, a revelatory account. It's a, it's a theological work. Most Gnostic myths present themselves as myths. They, they, are, they are what scholars call apocalypses. That is, uh, texts written in the genre of revelation they, that present themselves as divine knowledge handed down from above. There are relatively few texts preserved for us of Gnostic teaching that assume a more uh, theological pose where a teacher understanding himself to be a human being uh, tries to explain this stuff on a more human level. Okay, but we do have some such texts, uh, letters, pastoral work, and uh, one very long and detailed theological work called the Tri Tripartite Tractate. And this is in Nakamadi Codex 1. And there's a description of how the different kinds of human, uh, how different human beings responded when Jesus came down and began to preach the message understood in this text to be a Gnostic message, a version of Gnostic Christianity. And the text says there are three ways that people reacted, and this reflects the three sorts of human beings. They're the people who understood that the message is like a revelation and if they accepted this revelation instantly, like a, uh, and became, they became uh, the body to the head, that is the message, so that they attached themselves immediately to it. Then secondly, there are the people who needed to give it some time and think it over, but did come to accept it. And then third, there are the people who rejected it completely whatsoever. And of course, these are the people who are going to go to a bad place after life, right? So it's clear that some individuals who taught this stuff in the ancient world um, really, they, 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 they believed that some are going to accept it quickly, others not so much, and others not at all. And they understood the content of the, this teaching, this gnosis, uh, as in terms of theological gnosis, to be one that um, connotes salvific, um, that connotes salvific results or uh, salvific expectations. Individuals who get it quickly, they are going to perhaps go to a better place or something more special will happen to them. And 
where they at least deserve a more exalted place in the community. But this isn't unique to Gnosticism, right? Um, you find in any religious environment where there's competition, religious competition, distinctions um, among how people react to a message. Okay, well, thank you for uh, for explaining that. So this was, uh, if I'm understanding correctly from your explanation, this is something that wasn't considered a type of uh, special knowledge that uh, was only meant as a aha moment and I understand everything all at once. Uh, it could happen that way for some people, but it wasn't necessarily that way for everyone. Sure. Okay. And, and both, both the, the heresiographical sources mm -hmm. and some of our ancient Gnostic theological sources, like the tripartite tractate, they, they describe that in specific. Okay. Um, specifically, um, that, that some people would get it immediately, some people would not, and then some people wouldn't get it at all. And this, this, this pattern comes up over and over, and it's the sort of thing that you would expect mm -hmm. uh, for an environment of ancient religious competition. Understood. Now to the term Gnosticism, who uh, coined this term uh, and how was this initially defined? Because I know today it's probably different. Yeah, so Gnosticism um, was coined by one of the Cambridge Platonists. This is a group of uh, English uh, Platonizing scholars in the 17th century hanging out together in Cambridge. Um, uh, Henry Moore, and Henry Moore used the term Gnosticism to describe any ancient Christian heresy, or rather the whole spectrum of Christian heresies. So from the beginning, the term Gnosticism actually has a deep ambiguity in how it is used today versus where it actually comes from and what it was coined to use. Um, and the way that Moore coined the term to talk about Christian heresy in general is actually really in keeping with how Irenaeus and other heresiographers use the terms, the term Gnostic. That is, they, they use this term to talk about all kinds of heresies, not just those having to do with the Gnostic myth. And yet, with, uh, with time, the term came to take on connotations that have to do um, uh, uh, very, very heavily, very closely with the Gnostic myth. There's a reason for this. Irenaeus may describe the myths that we today call Gnostic with the Gnostic school of thought, and it may not be clear that individuals who propose to, who 
uh, traded in such mints called themselves um, Nostokoi, that is, people in possession of special knowledge. But he, he does seem to associate this Gnostic terminology with these myths in some way. Moreover, there is a second witness that's, who is important here and whom we haven't mentioned yet. And this is a pagan writer, a philosopher named Porphyry, who was writing in the third century CE. And he writes that in the school of his teacher, Plotinus, there were texts being circulated that had been circulated by, had been circulated by Nostokoi, people called knowers, who were heretics among the Christians. And then he gives a name, uh, that the names of some of these teachers and the names of some of these texts. He says that these texts uh, alleged that Plato was not the ultimate authority, or specifically that uh, he, he had, his teachings had penetrated the depth of intelligible substance, that is, the, the world of the form. And moreover, his teacher, Plotinus, wrote a work against these uh, uh, texts circulated by Gnostics that Corporate himself gave the title to against the Gnostics. At Nag Hammadi, we found some works with the same title of those texts mentioned by Porphyry. So here with Porphyry, we get a very close tying of the name Nostokos and then the kinds of myths that are mentioned uh, by Irenaeus. So even if Irenaeus doesn't use this terminology very consistently, um, this philosopher in the third century, another ancient source, does seem to very closely associate the terminology of being Gnostic with the kinds of myths that we found at Nag Hammadi and with specific texts that we discovered at Nag Hammadi. So in the 20th century, scholars began to put this evidence together and argue we can use the term Gnosticism in a productive way to describe the ancient complex of evidence that has to do with these ancient myths and the people who circulated them. And even though some of the ancient evidence about the term Gnostic does not point towards these myths, enough of it does that we can use the word in a modern, uh, as we like today, um, uh, to discuss it. In 1966, there was a conference in Italy, in the city of Messina, uh, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Um, That's right. Uh, that deemed it important to make a distinction, uh, distinction uh, between the, these terms gnosis and Gnosticism. Why was that? Yeah, the Medina, com uh, excuse me, the Messina conference um, is, is fascinating, and it was re a real watershed in the modern academic discourse about these subjects. On the one hand, um, the conference, as you say, took place in 1966, so only 21 years after the Nag Hammadi discovery. And at this point, very few Nag Hammadi texts had been translated and published, but a few had. 
and scholars were getting really deep into the process of engaging this material for the first time. Um, and in so doing, they were reviewing all of the evidence that may be related to it and trying to think of new theoretical frameworks they could um, use to understand it. And something that is not discussed so much by scholars today, but is an, another important backdrop for the Messina Conference is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, this happened almost at the same time as the Nagamati discovery. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were, or, the, or rather, the archaeological evidence of the Qumran community was first discovered in 1945 and excavated over the course of the, the following three years. And already in the 50s, uh, some of the most important of the Dead Sea texts had been published. Now, the Dead Sea texts were older than Christianity, but seemed to tell us a lot about the um, apocalyptic and possibly mystical backdrop of earliest Christianity and the environment in which Jesus was born and lived and the first Christians came from. And the Nag Hammadi Library seemed to scholars at this time in the mid-60s to be sort of like a sequel to that, okay? Um, picking up on the mystical and apocalyptic environment of Christianity in the second century, following the environment that the Dead Sea School told us about. And so there are several uh, articles in the proceedings of the Messina Colloquium that talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls in relationship to Gnosticism, um, and not just the Nag Hammadi text, which is a, a trajectory of inquiry that until very recently um, uh, had been, has been set aside. Nobody, nobody uh, talked about that for the 50 years following um, until very recently. So I bring this up because the, the, at, the, at the Messina Colloquium, scholars were looking for ways to not just talk about the very specific um, teachings of the ancient Gnostics, that is the early Christian heresy or uh, the early Christian teaching that had something to do with the Gnostic myths we discussed at the beginning of this podcast, but they also wanted to deal with anything related to Gnosticism that scholarship in the emergent history of religion in the 19th and early 20th centuries had also talked about in relation to Gnosticism. So things like um, myth, uh, mysticism in general or um, elite secret communities, esoteric teaching within greater religious traditions. These are all things that had been associated with Gnosticism in 19th century theology, in theosophy, in early 20th century occultism, and so forth. And scholars at Messina were interested in that too, right? So what they recognized was, okay, this ancient Christian teaching about the demiurge and the aeons and going, being, the soul being liberated and going back to heaven, that's one thing. And it seems to be kind of related to this newer stuff um, or, or stuff that we would today call uh, modern Gnosticism or esoteric elite spirituality or hidden mystical traditions. They, they seem to be related to one another in some way, 
but they're not the same. So the, at, at Messina, scholars decided to refer to the ancient Christian teaching as Gnosticism, and then the greater spectrum of elite secret teaching, or rather a secret mystical teachings for a spiritual elite, as the Gnosis. And this is uh, this follows a a longer tradition um, in European and especially German theology of thinking of their of thinking of secret um, spiritual teaching that transcends um, uh, uh, confessional and um, ethical or legal religious teaching, but a kind of mystical teaching that goes beyond the differences or denominations between different religions and calling that gnosis. And this, this theological approach to gnosis, the idea of gnosis as a kind of trans-religious theology, this goes back to the 17th century. You mentioned uh, earlier that uh, the term Gnosticism was difficult because, as, as you mentioned, there was... Uh, talk of uh, Platonic uh, philosophy with uh, Plotinus and Porphyry, etc. But so it's difficult to know what it is when you when you're what it is when you use the term Gnosticism. Uh, what it is, what type of discourse uh, you're talking about. So it's a confusing type of term. So you've ex explained that part. But if we can move now to the term Gnostic. Uh, regarding those who believed in this point of view, it seems from the the way that you're talking about it, these people didn't. I, I wouldn't say that we could, you know, if we use like modern terminology, we we wouldn't call these people that that adhere to this system of thought uh, a secret society because they seem to be talking and open about it. So. Um, that, that's just one little uh, observation that I have. But uh, you note in your work that the term Gnostic is also complicated because many of these people who we would label quote-unquote Gnostic didn't call themselves that. So, And then there were all these other groups of that, that followed teachers that called themselves something else. So could you explain that a little bit more, why Gnostic uh, in, in the sense of talking about the people who actually uh, believed in this point of view, why this is also complicated? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, the question of secrecy. This is a, this is a difficult question. You know, were, these, were these secret groups or secret societies? Mm. The phraseologists, like Irenaeus, they say yes. Oh, okay. They 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 accuse they accuse their opponents. Uh, Irenaeus and other heresiologists uh, accuse their opponents of teaching of, of offering basically offering side instruction to churches in private, <laughs> and then among the people who believe in this stuff, making a sort of counter church within the church. Okay. Mm, okay. So, and, and, and that is a kind of secret society. Um, it is not so clear how much of that was actually done in practice. You know, the, the Nag Hammadi texts, I don't, they, 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 seem to, they seem to describe, they describe a lot of revelations. They like language about secrecy and concealment. 
but for the most part, they are not church manuals. We have a couple of ritual texts um, that describe initiations and give hymns um, that are uh, quite beautiful and striking. Um, but what they don't describe is the actual method of, you know, going going to church on a Sunday um, and then figuring out who in the congregation will be susceptible to the message about the Demiurge and the fall of Sophia and then uh, how you get them uh, to come to your apartment later so that you can give them advice about how all this stuff really works. You know, this is, uh, for, for that, we are mainly reliant on the phraseologist. Um, but I think it's, it's plausible. There were lots of secret societies in the ancient world, and I think uh, it, is, it is a human thing for people to, within the community, begin to, support, to form sub-communities. Um, you know, scholars have used a lot of sociological models to try to understand Gnostic evidence, and I think one of the most productive ones has been um, study of subcultures and of outsider communities. And the, the, these, it makes sense to me that within Christian communities, there are individuals who thought, well, I definitely belong in the church in a more, in, in a more abstract way, in a greater sense, but there's some aspects of this that don't work for me. And these individuals probably found like-minded souls and uh, began to get together in their own time without renouncing Christianity altogether, right? And my guess is that the individuals who are circulating this literature did so as part of these smaller groups, you know, just as subcultures today in, say, the Netherlands, where we both are right now, where we're all um, uh, Dutch citizens or, or residents of the Netherlands, that's a greater community to which we belong. But then we participate in other groups at the same time, uh, whether it be scholarly networks, family networks, and so forth. So with the Gnostics, we're looking at one network of esoteric, mystically, philosophically inclined Christians interested in these, this particular kind of teaching. And that's the, the idea that some of these Christians were operating in secret, um, I think is not too strange, actually. It would be strange if some of them weren't. <laughs> um, okay. I guess I, for the yeah yeah go ahead. I, I well I guess I was thinking in terms of like if we could make a a, a modern comparison of uh, if we look at the phenomenon of the satanic panic in the United States in the eighties, um, there was this this talk of all of these satanic cabals that were doing all of these things and they were corrupting the minds of the youth. And it had to do, as you mentioned before, with Slayer and all of these heavy totally, metal totally. and all of that stuff. This is something that is kind of a, um, um, a hyper uh, sensitive topic to evangelicals. And they had a tendency to uh, kind of, you know, blow these narratives up and, and make make something out of really nothing because there was no evidence of any of this type of thing. So that's what I was thinking about more in the sense of like a secret society of this, like, you know, mm. what we would say the Illuminati being, you know, there yeah, was yeah, yeah. there was an Illuminati at one time in the in the history, but nowadays it's made into this 
this almost a mythical beast that, you know, you, you can't find it anywhere. Whereas with the people who are adhering to this system of thought, apparently it's known about because Arrhenius is talking about it. He has to say, well, these are the heretics and he's writing books about it. So apparently there is something happening that people are talking about it. It, it is a subculture, as you say, but it's not this fantastical narrative that's produced out of the imagination of a of mind of someone who who wants to you know make an issue out of it that's kind of what i was getting at yeah yeah and i think i think you're right um this and the the, the to continue the the satanic panic analogy you know i i grew up in the 80s these are these are yeah me too it's a very live <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so it's a okay well as gen xers we can <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we can we can we can use this as a common point of reference. It's a good one. It's a good one, I think, because the while while the the satanic panic um, did not turn up evidence in the end, or rather, the FBI investigating the satanic panic did not turn up evidence of widespread satanic conspiracy, you know, um, um, among young people. It is the case that there were some young people that were interested in the aesthetics of heavy metal and did go to Slayer concerts, right? It's right. not like the people who were, who were being marginalized or who were being investigated under the guise of satanic panic didn't exist. They did exist, but they were not doing these diabolical organized things, committing these crimes that they were accused of. And I think in a similar thing, the individual circulating Gnostic myths did exist. And as we learned from this Coptic evidence, these books we, that were discovered in Egypt, they were even teaching some of this stuff. These books are, there are lots of these books. They're long. They're handsomely produced, painstakingly produced by individuals who, who believed in this stuff, who write at the end of a, at the end of a codex, you know, describe rites of prayer uh, and, and draws little fishes, you know. I mean, it, it's clearly, these are these are devotional manuals, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so people were circulating these myths who believed in them, not just as stories to make fun of or uh, something wacky that you come up with with your come up uh, with with your with your friend on a Saturday, but uh, people were developing this stuff in, in a serious way. But that does not mean that they were committing other crimes that they were. Uh, accused of or transgressive acts that they were accused of by the heresiologists. So Irenaeus claims, for example, that the Gnostics held orgies, okay, or that they um, would not just meet in secret, but uh, that they would use this kind of pedagogy to seduce impressionable young women. Um, and so you better watch out for the young ladies at your church a Gnostic teacher may come by and teach her some bad ideas and pull her into bed, you know, this sort of thing. And the evidence that we have from the surviving Gnostic literature tells us that these Christians were, if anything, the, the Gnostic Christians, if anything, they were very uh, uh, austere, uh, ethically speaking. They were not committing orgies. They were not seducing people. If anything, they were trying to escape the body and deny the body in a way that does not fit with um, uh, modern neo-Gnostic holistic embrace 
of the body as part of the world. This is one of the ways in which ancient Gnosticism is really different from contemporary mysticism and Western spirituality that tries to connect the body to the cosmos. These ancient texts uh, unequivocally reject the body. And this is one of the reasons that some scholars think that the Nag Hammadi text must have been uh, produced and copied by Christian monks, uh, monks engaging in uh, ascetic exercises. This literature may have appealed to a monastic audience. As for, but uh, is that is that clear? Should we move on? Yes, to, no, that's that's very the clear. Term Gnostic or, and yeah, because yeah? I okay. I've got off on a tangent. I'm sorry for that. No, no, it's a good, it's a good tangent. It's a good tangent. And I mean, no. you should feel you should feel free to well, whatever whatever you're interested in, you know, latch on to it. And we'll we'll go to that. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for indulging me. No, the actual question that I had was about the term Gnostic. Why why is this used when many of the groups didn't even call themselves that? It's a good question. That's a, that's a, that's a good question. In the, in the extant Gnostic literature we have, this Gnostic, this, this Coptic stuff, okay, you don't have use of the term Gnostic as a self-designation, although there are Egyptian phrases um, that I think would probably be pretty good translations of the term Gnostic. So they, these Coptic texts are translations from Greek, and they use some phrases that I think could plausibly be translations of the Greek word Gnostical. So, for example, in the Gospel of Truth, there are descriptions of the say of the elect human being as the one who possesses knowledge, or the, the, the person speaking addresses the audience as ye children of perfect knowledge, things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, these kinds of phrases are used a lot in this literature. So it's not clear that these individuals call themselves um, uh, Gnosticoi, but they did call themselves terms that were pretty similar. Okay. That's one thing. <laughs> Knowledge comes up a lot in this literature, and it does seem to be special. A second thing is that they use a lot of other um, interesting phrases. So, for example, um, children of light, the sons and daughters of light, this comes up a lot. A very uh, ethnic terminology was really important in earliest Christianity. Christians like to describe themselves as belonging to a new race together with the Greeks, the barbarians, and the Jews. These were understood to be the three primary races in the Roman world, uh, the Greeks, the barbarians, and Jews. Christians would call themselves a fourth race, a new race. And uh, this, this ethnic terminology is reflected in the Coptic texts. Uh, some of the texts uh, refer to the elect as the immovable race. The idea being that the, the soul or the, the spirit from heaven is not movable. It's so stable, so powerful that its stability cannot be shaken like transitory worldly things. Okay. Um, and they also use the language of seeds and generation. Um, the, the figure Seth, the third child of Adam is Eve, right? So after Cain and Abel, that doesn't go well. Adam and Eve try again. They have a third child. He's the good one. All of humanity is descended from him. His name is Seth. This Seth figure is revered in a lot of Gnostic literature. And so many of these texts refer to the elect human beings, the good human beings, as the seed of Seth. 
that is true humanity, as opposed to the human beings who don't understand the message. So there are all of these other titles that are, that are used. And um, some of them pop up, especially those having to do with Seth repeatedly. And this tells us that there may have been uh, literary traditions along the lines of which there could have been something like congregations creating these literary traditions in the long-term sphere. I see. That helps to uh, explain it a little bit better. So they did, they did set themselves apart. They did think, think of themselves as a different community. They definitely thought of themselves as special. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there's always, but, uh, uh, you know, there was, how to put it, in, at the beginning of modern research on this material, there was an idea that this, that the Gnostic myth was pre-Christian, older than Christianity. So old that in fact it inspired some of the early, earliest Christian writings themselves. Okay. And this is part of a, a body of a, a kind, a kind of research, stream of research or agenda of research. Um, that became active at the end of the 19th and especially the beginning of the 20th century when, when brilliant scholars were working on um, Sanskrit texts, uh, texts in Persian, um, and other, other um, languages and books produced by cultures that predated the culture of the Roman Empire, that were older than the culture of the Roman Empire, and coexisted with or pre-existed, antedated the, uh, uh, the culture of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament, what becomes known as the Old Testament to Christians. So these scholars were looking at Persian texts, um, Indian texts, and especially um, Egyptian and Near Eastern texts, Babylonian, Assyrian material, things like that and saying, let's take this biblical stuff and read it in the context of its Near Eastern environment. And my goodness, look, there are some things even older than the Bible out there. We can actually, we don't have to take the Bible as a point of departure. We can place it as one of many cultural and textual constructs in the ancient Mediterranean world. Okay? And this meant also recognizing that some things were older than it. Um, these scholars uh, uh, call themselves the religion Geschichte which uh, means the, the history of religion school. They're doing the history of religion. And a, a scholar named uh, Richard Reitzenstein um, argued that the Gnostic myth, as he knew from Irenaeus, had a lot of per, um, uh, relation to Persian material, and then especially to a body of materials that belong to a religious group called the Mandaeans, who, if anything, are the real inheritors of ancient Gnosis. This is a ethnic community from the, the marshy regions in eastern Iraq and western Iran, um, um, who uh, I actually do call themselves Dostokoi. Uh, um, they use an Aramaic term instead, uh, the Mandaeans, that is the individuals who have mandor, uh, which is knowledge and Mandaean. And the myths, their, their, their myths um, resemble ancient Gnostic myths in some ways, are clearly related to them in some ways. 
And this is an actual surviving religious community. It's become baptismal practice. Very interesting stuff. Um, their texts were also being published at the beginning of the 20th century and interpreted. So people like Reisenstein and then later Rudolf Goldman argued Persian and Mandaean materials are older than Christianity itself. And texts like the Gospel of John with its uh, opening um, hymns about light and darkness, the word appearing, this is actually inspired by Gnostic myths like we find with the Mandaean. Now, actually, the Mandaean stuff is not pre-Christian, it's uh, post-Christian, it's not as old as these scholars thought, but the legacy, one of the legacies of the religion was the idea that Gnosticism is itself a religion with its own creation myth that is older than Christianity. And this perspective has not stood up under uh, scrutiny. All of our uh, modern artifacts, that is, all of the, the uh, uh, artifacts that we have discovered, that are all texts, uh, almost universally text, almost universally texts or manuscripts from the ancient world that contain these Gnostic myths, they're, they're written by Christian scribes and in a language whose use connotes some kind of Christian identity, Coptic. And then all of our ancient testimony about these myths are either by Christian heresiographers writing against other Christians in their communities, that is, uh, people like Irenaeus, or from a pagan philosopher, Porphyry, who says, this stuff is being circulated by local Christians. So it seems that whoever the Gnostics were, they were never, inex they, they were inextricable from the phenomenon of early Christianity. They never existed apart from it. This doesn't mean that we should just uh, wipe over what is distinctive and interesting about them and wipe out the diversity and saying, well, they're just early Christians. I think that's also um, interesting <laughs> and historically inaccurate. But they do seem to have belonged to Christian communities in some way at all times. Can we consider Gnosticism, if we just want to use that word for the sake of our discussion, uh, to be an esoteric system of thought? Well, it depends on how we define esotericism, <laughs> right? I mean... Well, if we if we look at the curriculum that's that's uh, uh, presented at the University of Amsterdam when you're studying Western esotericism under that moniker, yeah. that is usually included in that uh, in that course uh, of study that we that we talk about Gnosticism as a as as a, as a part of this whole larger field and that includes all these currents of of ideas. What, what's your opinion yeah, about yeah. it? Well, I think however you, however you connote esotericism, whatever esotericism is to you, um, a lot of ancient materials, and especially Gnosticism, is hard to get away from. Right. Like, I mean, Gnosticism is going to be part of it. So, you know, um, I, I, as, as you probably know, I studied in the Amsterdam program when I was a master's student, uh, 
uh, longer, longer ago than more long ago than I care to admit. Um, and the back, back then, you know, there were, there were really two approaches to esotericism that were on the map. One was Walter Hanacraft, who wrote about this, uh, uh, kind of three currents of Western culture, um, faith that is organized religion, reason that is secularism and gnosis. And that is the third a uh, marginalized religion of esotericism, right? And then clearly this Gnostic stuff fits into the third marginalized current. This is what, this is kind of the counterpart to Christian faith that organized churches have been trying to put down for mm -hmm. 2000 years, the ancient Gnosis in the Mediterranean world. That's, that's how I understood Hanukkah when I was a student. Yeah, that would um, fit but, with another, the that would fit with the rejected knowledge, right? right exactly. This yeah. is this is literally with the rejected gnosis of antiquity. Yeah. I mean, the, the ancient Gnosticism. Um, a second approach was that of uh, Koko von Strukrad, who defined esotericism as a kind of discourse or dynamic of secrecy and concealment about very important things, about higher forms of knowledge. Um, and this works with Gnosticism very well because um, what what Pumstrukra describes is basically revelation, re re revelatory dynamics, revelatory epistemology. And these texts are Gnostic texts are almost all revelatory. They they present themselves as special relations transmitted through text from heaven to you, you know. And um, and what 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 do they tell? Very important secrets. Secrets about the origin of the world, secrets about the true nature of humanity and uh, how, how you become saved through using the right rituals and following the right Christian message. So that, that also is a, definitely a form of esotericism. Um, and Gnosticism fits well into it. If you look at the history of scholarship on esotericism or the, the idea of esotericism, Gnosticism pops up immediately. So for example, um, one of the, 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 the first, it's, it's not actually the first, but it's kind of the landmark uh, turning point for the notion for the, the term esotericism is um, in the writing of Jacques Mater and at the end of the second decade of the 19th century. Um, this is the, the occult historian who coins the term esotericisme, okay? And in what book does he do it? It's a critical history of Gnosticism. It's a book on Gnosticism <laughs> where he brings up this stuff because what, he's try what he wants to talk about is the esoteric teaching of the ancient schools of Alexandria to whom, where, where, where the teachings of uh, Persians and Brahmins circulated with the eclectic philosophers among whose most um, among whose most prodigious exponents were of course the ancient Christian philosophers known as Gnostics. So as as soon as you get into the history of 19th century esotericism and occultism, the Gnostics already represent a kind of heritage or identity marker. And, and they never go away. Right, right. So if you, you've 
beautifully explained all of this uh, scholarly debate and, and all of the, about the terms and the definitions. What can we say about this today? How do scholars approach this worldview today? Do, do, sh- do we just keep calling it Gnosticism and Gnostic and, 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 or do we use other terms today? Uh, well, I belong to a party that actually does stick with the terms Gnosticism and Gnostic uh, for two reasons. One is, um, you, if you use this term, people often do get a sense of what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And I think, and, and yeah, yeah, it's true. There's a real power to it. I mean, we, we should criticize this, but, you know, uh, you, you can deconstruct just about anything, um, particularly with, with things in the ancient world. So we, we know that antiquity, there's no such thing as religion and what we, what, in, what, in terms of what we think of as religion today. But yet we still need to talk to our students about something resembling religion mm-hmm. so we give courses on ancient religion. Yeah. Um, but we can at least read those criticisms of the term religion. And then when we talk about ancient religion with our students, we do it in a more responsible way that is reflecting upon, that is reflective and takes into consideration the criticisms of this term that we've seen. And uh, maybe we get a little closer to the truth. Right. Mm-hmm. Even though we use a term that's anachronistic. Yeah. And I think the term Gnosticism can be used like that. A second reason is I care a lot about the reception of this material. I think the, 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 the fact that this, that, that this, this ancient sets of, of myths, um, the crazy and fascinating and enlightening stories they tell, um, and the, the kind of world out of which they come has its own reception history. I just could describe one stream of it with Jacques Mater and the beginning of scholarship on esotericism. But there are lots of popular receptions of Gnosticism as well. And I think using the term Gnosticism helps us keep a sense of what ties those receptions to the primary source material. But I think it also depends on what we're trying to do. If I have a lot of colleagues, uh, and I want to make sure I give you some perspectives uh, that are representative of the academy as a whole, right? Um, many of my colleagues, especially in North America, don't use the term Gnosticism at all. Um, they describe these materials as representatives of early Christianity or early Christian theology. Um, and they prefer to focus on the rhetoric of the diversity of early Christianity. These texts show us how diverse the phenomenon of early Christianity was. And I think in terms of social identity, there's a lot of truth to that. Because I, I agree I agree with these colleagues that these texts are inextricable from early Christian milieu. You know? So that's a second way to go about reading this stuff that I think uh, is valuable. Although I wouldn't go so far as to say, eh, no Gnosticism, let's forget about it. Mm. To say it's all just Christian, I think doesn't quite capture the whole picture. And nor does it uh, 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 capture, or rather, uh, uh, to simply call it Christian, I think, takes away from uh, the very distinctive character of this material. Many of these myths are, say, in no unequivocal terms, that the creator of this world is bad. He's out to get you. Okay. And you as a human being do not belong to him or to this place. You come from somewhere else. 
You are superior to what is around you and you are superior to the being that created this place and the, and the worldly authorities he put in power. Now, this is a, a pretty distinctive message. Um, if you take theologies of creation seriously, right? And so I think we need some kind of distinctive terminology to denote that, uh, given that there is one that people already kind of recognize, and that's Gnostic, things having to do with Gnosticism, then we can use that. That's okay. Yeah. Okay, so we'll just keep using those terms in this discussion. <laughs> we won't we won't be difficult about it. Um we won't yeah, try to try to be very careful with trying to be very specific and understand. I mean, we all we understand that these these terms are are uh have have changed over the course of time. We're going to use them because as as you explained uh very succinctly they they do have a purpose in the reception of uh, and, and the transmission of what it is that we're trying to talk about here. So, a clarification concerning some dates around the forty minute mark. Dylan was discussing the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dylan mentioned the year 1945 as the beginning date of the archaeological digging of the scrolls. Uh, he has uh, let me know that he's mistaken in that part. He misspoke. It is in uh, around 1946 and 1947 that the Dead Sea Scrolls were being discovered. Join us for part two, where Dylan and I discuss why Gnosticism was considered heretical by the Christian Church, what was happening in the story of the secret book of John, and where we can find Gnostic stories in our contemporary pop culture. <laughs>